Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, we're back with the Good Life Podcast, and today I'm honored to welcome Father Daniel French, who is the vicar of the the parish, well, the the vicar of Solcum. There we go. I believe I've got that right. And he is uh, a, a leader there, and so welcome. Father French, we're glad you're joining us today. Uh, it's lovely to be with you, Matt. Uh, that's it's really great. And so today, I want to to talk with you, Daniel, about you know several uh, several elements of your work. So, but let's just begin with this. Most of our audience are American evangelicals who are have not come across the title vicar, except in some Victorian novels, uh, you know, Jane Austen, places like that. So what exactly is a vicar and what are his responsibilities? Uh, well, yeah, it, it's a title that I don't always warm to, actually. Um, and, and some people, if, they, if they're wanting to be a bit cockney in uh, this part of the world, might call you Vic, which is even worse. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but we can do Jane Austen. Uh, uh, so a, a, a vicar or rector is essentially the, the parish priest, the pastor of uh, a flock. Um, you know, it, it's a kind of me- medieval appendix, really, that that I've got the title vicar in this particular context. Uh, some of my colleagues are rectors for some reason or other. I don't fully understand. Some of us are, are vicars. Some assistant clergy are called curates. Often, um, though, if you're in the continent, the curate is the vicar. I mean, it's crazy. It's so confusing. But um, uh, it, it's just it's a pastor, parish priest, Anglican pastor. OK, that, that that's helpful. But because, again, sometimes the language is confusing. And, and, and then, of course, for American uh, Americans in the Episcopal Church or with that background, as you said, it's reversed. Just leave it up to us Americans to turn things upside down. And, uh, and and, and kind of confuse it just a little bit more. But well, life would be boring otherwise. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. So, so tell me about your background. You know, j- just in general. You know, being you're being born and raised. Uh, what is your background? Well, um, Thorcombe, where I'm at, is uh, in the county of Devon, which is not quite Cornwall. If for those of you who might know of um, things like characters like Poldark. Uh, so um, Devon is West Country County in the UK, and I've pretty much lived here most of my life. Uh, so I, I'd be what you might call a Devon boy. Okay. Uh, and it's really rural. Uh, we're about 20 miles from Plymouth, which I think a number of your listeners will be very familiar with yes. the Pilgrim Fathers. Uh, and um, we're likewise about 20 miles from Dartmoor. And if folks are into Sherlock Holmes, I know of the Hound of the Baskervilles is yes. set there. Uh, and we're likewise, uh, we're 20 miles, 25 miles or so west from uh, Dartmouth, which is the... Um, not only is it the Royal Navy Marine Training College, but it's also where William of Orange landed, which I think okay. some of your listeners might be familiar with. So just to give yeah. you a, a little bit of context. Glorious Revolution. Exactly. Um, and um, Sorkham is a sailing destination. It's somewhere as a child when I grew up. I grew up near Plymouth. I never actually came down here. Um, it, it's it was considered and still is considered quite a sort of, uh, I don't know if you have the term in the States, posh, you know, yes. well-heeled. Yes. Um, sometimes it's been given the name r- rather caustically Chelsea by the sea because Chelsea is okay. a very, 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 very sort of well-heeled, 
part of London. Um, so um, I, I've largely kind of grown up sort of around Plymouth and this area. Uh, I was brought up for various complex reasons by my paternal grandparents. Uh, they ran a series. We had, we had shops. They had a bakery. Uh, so I was a kid. Sort of, I was one of those kids behind the counters, you know. Right. Uh, and um, they were godly folk, but they didn't start going to church. I think they, they, they had a period out of church till I was about a teenager. Mm. Uh, and I sort of booted up my Christianity with them in parallel, which was rather lovely. So interesting. Um, that was something that we kind of rediscovered as a family. And then I really, really came to faith in a, in a kind of deeper spiritual sense, you know, that, uh, when I was about 17, as um, uh, after my grandfather passed away very suddenly, um, I, I suppose over those few weeks, I had a sort of a, a sense of God holding me in that, in that grief. Mm. Uh, and it was the first time that I actually picked up the scriptures properly. I mean, you know, in religious education, we touched a little bit on Sunday school and what have right. you, but um, it, it sort of went in one ear and out the other. And though I fervently believed in God and enjoyed going to church, I was quite kind of geeky in the whole church thing and loved doing sort of backroom helping and altar serving and singing in the choir. Loved all that, loved that and the youth club stuff. Uh, I, I hadn't really um, met Christ in any kind of relational, true, deep way. Uh, yes. And so, um, yeah, I, I randomly picked up the Bible. In fact, it was a copy of St. Luke's Gospel, um, flicked it open, closing my eyes, doing this, you know, talk to me, God, now. Right. Uh, it's not a practice I'd recommend. Doing, Certainly but, not. Uh, but, uh, but I did it, and, you know, he was gracious to respond, and I fell upon, um, I think it's Luke 6, and it where love thy enemies, mm. do good to those uh, who would do ill to you, you know, walk the extra mile. And I think at that time I was looking for a politics. I'm still a bit. Uh, in a political no man's land, <laughs> right. but, um, but I was looking for a way of it, a way of engage. What would be the highest way to engage with the world? Um, what would surpass even my ideals? Hmm. And here was, you know, the carpenter from Nazareth saying, "Well, I'm going to judge you not by how much you love your friends or your pals or your." Uh, your work colleagues or your family or your children to come, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, the measuring stick is how you love your adversaries. And I just thought, wow, this is it. You know, this is, this is, this has got to be my politics. Uh, and um, it, you know, I, I was kind of deeply moved from, from that. Uh, I, I went on to study, computer science uh, at Canterbury, interestingly enough, uh, which is a, you know, an interesting religious centre for Episcopalians yes. and Anglicans to go. And uh, uh, so my, my kind of formative years as an undergraduate were there and visited lots of churches, saw lots of different denominations. Uh, and um, uh, felt during that this call to ministry um, but Carrie decided to carry on and do a computer science degree. Uh, I think the Lord confirmed to me that I was <laughs> I was not going to be working in Silicon Valley or anything like that because as much as I as much as I loved that, what what was a great hobby, um, I, I, I was seeing that I was. I just didn't have the mathematical ability really to go mm. to the take it to the level that was really needed. You know, there were, there were lots of guys uh, around me, uh, and it was mostly guys. You know, who who were clearly now you'd say were on were were gifted with some sort of Asperger um, 
ability that they could problem solve in a way that I never could. Right. Uh, and uh, I realized that I was not being called to be a computer programmer uh, right. uh, as much as I loved pottering around with this. And so, um, uh, yeah, went, went off to do theological, theological studies. Um, ordained in 1997, uh, initially in London, Kent area, because I wanted to see something different. Yes. Uh, I was, I, I'd been denominationally uh, a bit all over the place in undergraduate years, but I, I actually got confirmed because it was my grandmother's faith in particular. I got confirmed in the Roman Catholic Church. So uh, I initially went into Roman Catholic ministry and was a priest for four years, then met my wife and the rest is history, left and returned back to my grandfather's faith right. uh, in the Anglican Church, in the Scottish Episcopal Church. Um, and um, during my seminary time, was greatly affected by studies sort of in... Um, in, in moral theology of uh, Alistair McIntyre and his oh, seminal okay. book, After Virtue. Yes. Uh, which haunted me uh, ever since. And so I suppose in 2017, uh, now, now as an Anglican vicar in Salcombe, one of Britain's most southerly parishes, I can't remember who, but someone landed a this book upon me. I said, you've got to really read this book by this American columnist, journalist called Rod Dreher. And it touches upon this. Uh, it begins by opening up, talking about this moral theologian, Alistair McIntyre, and his sense that we're entering into a new dark age. And that kind of just fitted my, maybe it fitted my Gen X, you know, Right, view of the world. You know, you know what they say recently said on the the Friends reboot that that yes. the Boomers gave us Friends and we returned the we we returned with gratitude. We gave them the Matrix. <laughs> and we said, you know, this is this is how this is how we see the world. Uh, you might want us to see it like this, but we actually right. see it like this. You know, and uh, uh, I I think Dreher writes really well into that and the 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 sense that the myth of progress is, is really quite phony, um, appealed, really appealed to me. And, and I, I, uh, I suddenly thought, gosh, you know, this is an amazing piece of work. I'd been experimenting a bit in the parish with intentional communities and we've got an intern house. So we were looking a lot, at, a lot of stuff about St. Benedict um and um a lot of the people looking at St Benedict particularly in the UK maybe I'll deal with this in a bit later in the new monastic movement it was very much in the in the style garnished in a sort of um a progressive theology whereas right. i think Dreher's benedict doctrine communities are clearly more in line with uh, a traditional small form of orthodoxy. So I'd got very frustrated with new monasticism here yes. in the UK and was about to just throw the towel in. And uh, Dreher came over the hill with his theological uh, reasonings like the cavalry. Uh, and I, I was kind of suddenly swooped up into this to the point where I thought, do you know, I need to do a PhD or something around this. Particularly, I think it's chapter two on the re-enchantment uh, yes. project. Which he's uh, now writing a book on himself. Yeah, he is. Yeah, that uh, I think he's spot on on that, really. And he's really picked the right moment to do this, you know. So um, anyway, I never got to do a PhD because COVID came along and um, uh, I had to put my energies elsewhere. So how I came to write with the spectators completely out the blue in such a serendipitous moment. Uh, I don't know if you do this, Matt, but I, I try for, I'm an early riser, so I, I tend to have my, you know, toast and porridge 
um, hours before everybody else does in the family. Mm. And it's my me time with, you know, and I have my me time with my creator. And I'll try and read something maybe of the fathers or something spiritual. And this day I'd broken my rule and I was looking at Twitter. You know. <laughs> Not exactly the fathers. No, exactly. And um, uh, saw this posting by uh, the editor, um, Fraser Nelson, uh, on the country needing, and this was last year, uh, as we were emerging from the first lockdown, and a sense that the country needed to find the courage to, to take the risk, you know, to go out and reboot the economy and bring life back to normal. Uh, and I put in something somewhat sarcastic, try telling that to the Church of England. <laughs> and I didn't think anything like that. I'd never used Twitter that much. I had about 100 followers. Okay. And the little letterbox thing then went had a one on it. And I thought, oh, I wonder what that means, you know. I mean, it's appalling, really, for a computer. Most computer science folks are actually very untechy and a bit clumsy on, you know, because we're used to using huge mainframes and right. looking at database science and stuff. So you know, I kind of looked at this and thought, I wonder what this is, and clicked it. And there's a reply from Fraser Nelson saying, you know, that's really interesting, Father Daniel. Would you mind writing 800 words for us tomorrow? Oh, wow. Um and so I did, and in that I mentioned C.S. Lewis, um, Jordan Peterson, and Rod Dreher, and, you know, feeling that if there's a scenario, uh, you know, I think essentially my first article, there's a scenario in which a, a, a lot of Christianity could be pushed under the radar in this country. And we could end up, uh, we we could end up running a, uh, and I say this with with the greatest respect to. I mean, I've got a lodger who grew up in the Czech Republic, and I don't want to diminish the kind of persecution he had in the Soviet period. But you know, there's a sense in which we could be living something of our Christianity underground and needing to have networks that were not visible even to the established church. Uh, and that, that might be a way of operating. Uh, so is this your article, could an underground church now yeah. emerge in Britain? Yeah. That was so strong. And then the next thing I know, I get an email from, you know, do you, I don't know if you ever had this map where you think, Oh, you know, if I had a dinner party, so I'm sounding very Victorian and Jane Austen here. And if, yes, if I yes. had a dinner party, and I, I you know, I, I would have, you know, the Pope. I would have, you know, resurrect right. C.S. Lewis, you know, and uh, yes. oh, I'd have, you know, so and so and so and so and whatever. And I think, you know, I'd, I'd love to have Rod Dreher. I think that'd be so interesting to meet him and because. Uh, uh, He's really kind of inspired me and that. Uh, and, um, well, the next thing I get, I get this email from him. And, and it's, you know, I'm trying to describe this to a friend of mine saying, um, this is, you know, uh, this is extraordinary. I, I feel like theologically, I, I'd always liked the Spectator magazine. So even as a sort of somewhat uh, shy, geeky, more conservative kid, in the nine, in the eighties and the nineties, I you know I'd read the Spectator, so it was it was like writing for NME as a music teacher, writing for the Spectator. This was like awesome to be asked to write for them, and then to have you know your kind of theological rock star email you and saying, "Oh hi, you know, can I uh, could we get in touch?" I uh, you know oh, I was feeling a bit kind of down about things and then I saw your spectator article and I feel really kind of uplifted and and that and I'd love to you know talk to you and how can I help you and all this uh, uh, I, I was somewhat flattered really and uh, I, know that feeling. <laughs> I mean I, I, I can compare it with my daughter my daughter is a great One Direction fan you, you know the, the, the right. band but um 
one of the band members was in Sulcombe two months ago. I mean, we had a cardboard cutout of Louis uh, <laughs> in, in the bedroom that used to scare scare me when I'd walk up the corridor and think there was a burglar in. Yes. Anyway, the guy ended up renting the house next doors to us. Uh, and my, my daughter said, you know, Dad, I can die tomorrow. You know, she was, <laughs> and, and, you know and, and I felt that kind of similar excitement uh, with, with, you know, connecting in this way with Rod, you know, that uh, he, he just had so profoundly kind of moved me theologically mm. um, and been able to articulate in the, the things that, I'd struggled. I'd be able to give this book to friends and say, I think this is what I'm trying to say to you folks. Yes. That we, that, you know, we are entering a period which is not the up and up. It's, it's not, it's not endless progress where we could be entering into a new dark age. Uh, and are we ready for that period of exile as Christians? You know, so, um, to have someone articulate that so well and for me to be able to say, you know, get the book. <laughs> well, in fact, here's a copy, here's a spare copy, read it, yes. <laughs> um, was fab. So, yeah, so, so Rodre reached out to me and we ended up having, uh, you know, uh, long conversations and emails. Uh, and then I challenged him um, because why not, you know, sure. <laughs> you only get to live once and said, you know, you, you may have written these books, but I think the problem remains. And, and a, a former Queen's chaplain, Gavin Ashenden, who you may have heard of in the, in the UK, he's uh, very well noted. I think he's, he's had some impact in the States with, with others. In fact, he's been with Dreher on various YouTube things. He, he noted the problem as well, that what we lack is a consensus between um, you know, supernatural, biblically faithful, believing Christians, we lack enough of a consensus for what we're coming to in the age and what are the basics of the faith um, that we could end up still fighting battles 500 years old or maybe even right. a 1,000 years old. Uh, and, you know, the matrix could trample us over. Yes, and well, we were, you know, we were so into our debates and our in wars that we lost, we lost the battle for God, you know, and we end up in even deeper exile. Uh, right. And and I said, you know, the thing is, we need to actually start. Groups of us need to get together and articulate what we can agree on. And not only just, you know, I don't mean a sort of bare bones, decaffeinated Christianity. Right. But actually, we need to look almost, a, it's like looking at the Nicene Creed in the, through the eyes of the 21st century, where some of the issues are anthropology. You know, what yes. does it mean to be human? Um, uh, what are the effects of, say, mechanization? Right. Uh, on our sense of the world. Uh, and, you know, from that, how do we address a lot of the hot button issues through some of our key concepts like the incarnation, the atonement, yeah. uh, the, the, um, the sacramentality of creation and so on. I think this can be done in a very interesting way uh, that, that proves to be engaging and deep. Mm. Uh, and then um, in this sense, traditional conservative Christians, if they if we play our game right, can be on the right side of history. Right. And well, and, and just the, the general. Well, so I'm, I'm having to take take a breath here, even though. Sorry, you yeah, I've, I've gabbled. There, there's so much here that. We could actually expand this into about two or three more episodes but, but just you know starting going back to Alistair McIntyre and and his unique perspective on virtue which has been for me a personal project is the pursuit 
not just for myself, but in general, of the restoration of virtue as a concept mm. and then our calling to it because in some of our settings, uh, you know, low church evangelical setting where I'm, that I come from, the, the idea of, of virtue is largely non-existent. Mm. And the, it, it's something that you merely, you're converted to faith and then that's it. And then you just, quote, try to live a good life. Mm. And that's it. There, there's nothing more. And then you die and go to heaven. But again, it, it's it's fr- it's from a period of time when the the church had a greater uh, a greater say in national and local life when the standards of decency were much more in line, at least publicly, with what Scripture teaches and you know natural law as it was er- er- defined much earlier had much more prominence, whereas now there are no set standards. And, and, and so you talk about the lack of cohesive and clear expectations in something like anthropology. I mean, I can remember 20 years ago that the first time I heard the term anthropology and I was, and you know, I was told that just means the study of man. I was a freshman mm-hmm. in college and I thought, well, that's not very interesting because, you know, theology, the study of God, that's that that's what we should pursue. But of course, when I look back, I think, boy, that was very naive because the place where we are just we've been assaulted for so long in our anthropology. And and I, I think that mentality of who cares about anthropology, because, you know, it's just it's. We should only Christians. Their responsibility is to study God. But if you don't have a clear anthropology, uh, that's why we're being pummeled right now. We have no standards for what biblical sexuality looks like because we don't understand what man made in the image of God yet fallen looks like. So, you know. So, yeah, can I give you an instance of that? Yes, please. A few years back, I was at a seminar on um, gender and all the hot topic buttons around that um, with some theologians and ordinands and ordinands, sorry, trainee vicars. Right. Uh, and um, uh, we, we were presented with the the menu of, uh, you know, genders and orientations and flags and what have you. Uh, and a, a number of students' eyes were getting wider and wider as, the, uh, as, as this was being revealed. Uh, uh, and at, at the end of it, some of the students who were, interesting enough, it was, it was those of more of a scientific background were beginning to ask the facilitator more philosophical questions. Uh, And um, there came a natural point where I said, can anyone remind me, because I genuinely, I genuinely had forgotten, what does Thomas Aquinas, what did Thomas Aquinas say about the soul? You know, is the soul gendered or not? I I just can't remember. I just had a funny feeling that, he said something like either they're neutral or all souls are female or, you know, and, and Christ is male. There's, I just had a feeling he had something important to tell us. And the facilitator said, Thomas who? Wow. And I thought, this is where we're at. Thomas who? Right. I mean, he, he's not even, when we talk of church fathers, I mean, he's, Late, late med- medieval. He's he's not even a you know true father. At, you know that that's that that's hard. On one hand, it's hard to believe. On the other hand, because I'm a history teacher, you know, I, I've taught in public schools for 15 years in addition to ministry. So 
it's not hard to believe when, when you consider the, the general educational knowledge, not of students, but of the people who teach and then college professors, the limited understanding that many have of who people like Thomas Aquinas or Augustine, of who they are, is skewed to, to be, well, that's just someone who upheld the patriarchy. And, you know, so, so the, certainly don't even, probably never read one line of some of these people. So I, I mean, th- th- that makes absolute sense. And I'm I, I'm not an expert in Aquinas by any means. I just right. had a funny feeling on the back of my mind that he had something interesting to say on this subject that might circumnavigate the problem. Right. Yeah. There was a it was a genuine wanting to uh, maybe square the circle, but it was, a, it was a genuine reach out, and I got Thomas Who. Well, and so then that leads us to the project that you're working on right now uh, with the underground catechism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so so tell us about, you know, what is the underground catechism uh, and and what is the, what is the work itself? How are you exactly pursuing this? And, you know, what is your, what is your goal? You've already uh, spoken indirectly to it, but I I just want to get the name out there. Sure. Uh, and there might be another title that we give to it. We've, we've, we're in negotiations with a publisher. Um, I mean, I can't say too much on that respect. Of but um, but uh, uh, we, we've got about a, eight to a dozen writers who are pottering away, and we meet on Zoom fortnightly, um, some from the States, some from the UK, Mm. Uh, one from France, uh, and we're we're looking to take we're looking to present the Christian faith afresh in a way that we think that traditional Christians could unite around and say, yes, this is our story. Uh, I, I think we'll probably end up writing something. So, uh, in a, in quite a sort of punchy, accessible style. Uh, to begin with, you know, something say that's a smallish book, but could be um, the beginnings of uh, spin-offs and other writings mm. and what have you. Uh, but uh, essentially, we feel that let, let's look at issues like loving your enemies. As I started our post, you know. Um, why we should, as Christians, reject cancel culture. That is... You know, for me, you can't get into Eden unless you are prepared to love your enemy. You know, but but right. leave, your, leave your gift at the altar before you come to worship and make peace with your brother. You know, that, that, that actually is a real... That is not only a practical pastoral issue, it's a... It's an, it's, it's a theological, it's an anti-ideological starting point that we cannot divide the world into oppressed and oppressor uh, in, and, and expect much fruit from that. You know, that um, right. So, so you, you can't take, you can't adopt the traditional Marxist perspective of no. man and, simult- and, and do so from a biblical perspective. So, yeah. so if you don't mind just... I know that you cannot do this all the way out for everything, but you know, so for, so for many, at least here in the states, when we uh, there's a lot of Christians who have capitulated to cancel culture to social justice, and they they do so through the through the guise of that same verse, love your enemies. But there, they hijack that passage and and say, "We're called to love our enemies." Therefore, 
because you have been oppressed, you know, because you white American Christian have oppressed group X, Y, and Z, you are called, therefore, to shut up. That's how you love your enemies. I mean, that, that type of thing is preached, and not just in the, the liberal cities. That message is, I mean, I live in a small city of 25,000 people next to a much larger city of, you know, almost 200 in the surrounding area. So in a, in small, in a small conservative area, that there, there are ministers who preach that. So you're saying... And I agree, by the way. But but I, I want to hear you tease this out. How does loving our enemies require us to reject cancel culture? Because I think cancel culture is, uh, to use a Jordan Peterson phrase, is a very low resolution way of looking at the world. Uh, yeah, since the Industrial Revolution, and probably even before that, We've not only mechanized our lives, but we mechanized our vision for humanity Mm. and everything becomes binary. Uh, It's not only ones and zeros uh, and pixel on and pixel off. It's it's the inability of cancel culture to do what I think. Yeah, something like the Book of Common Prayer and its morning prayer starts you off each day with pointing the finger in and saying that each of us on all sides of the fences have to begin by looking at our own hearts and and ask for the divine hand to repair our hearts. You know, we have to throw ourselves at the mercy of God and at the cross. Um, Is it Solzhenitsyn said that every human, the conflict of nations runs through every human heart. That's right. And I think, the problem with cancel culture, it, it has a kind of Freudian element, isn't it? That um, all the everybody's against me, um, and, and all the all the nasty stuff of the world is actually something outwit that's oppressing me, that's pushing me down. Uh, and what I need to do is assert myself out of that. Whereas I think the cross has a completely different starting point. Mm. Uh, so uh, I, I came to this point actually a few years after opening that Bible on um, uh, Luke, Luke's gospel on Luke 6. Um, because um, I, I did a little theological project or a long essay at seminary on liberation theology which initially I came to thinking, this is great. You know, and I love the whole idea of cooperatives and, right. and, and local Christians getting together in Latin America to, to sort out right. pertinent practical problems and, uh, and seeing them contextually through the eyes of the scripture. But then it, be, it began to dawn on me that uh, a large part of liberation theology w- was – heavily laced with this Marxist lens of the world. Right. And, you know, to put it just very bluntly, Matt, I thought, how, if you take on this, if you take a lot of this, how can you love, how do I, how would I end up loving my enemy? How would there be reconciliation? Um, What's the sort of the, the journey for this this process of liberation seems overly concentrated on Exodus to the detriment of the of Christ's self offering on the cross. Yes, yeah. You know, they, they went on and on and on about Moses and Exodus and let my people go uh, at, and the. Whereas the, the the early church fathers see that as um, I mean I'm not saying it's not un, it's not unhistorical, but they see it as a um, you know, parts of the Exodus story are a type of baptism, 
Right. They prefigure baptism. So, so, so to take, so to take cancel culture and, and and adapt it into Christianity seems to me crazy because in the end I think you've got to you've you've got to abandon the idea of the the cross salvation um, and so on. Yeah. Right. There is no hope. No. In the end. So one of in fact one of our elders this past Sunday just preached a sermon on. Uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or, or what you know, com- what's commonly called the unpardonable sin. Yeah. And, and and he said one of the problems with our view of modern social justice today is that we treat it as the fact that certain people are privileged just because of their skin color or the way you know what they're born into they're treated as guilty and there's no hope of redemption Mm. there is no forgiveness and restoration from that but that then also entails what i hear you saying regarding the, the liberation theology it if you adopt that perspective if you are one who has been in the past um oppressed in some way you have you are always in exodus mode never arriving in the promised land mm. there is no hope of deli- of final deliverance and entrance into what god has given you are always kept in this continual i'm escaping bondage so you are retaining a slave mindset when the wilderness was for 40 years, they were having to leave a slave mindset. And you could even say, as I heard one of my teachers years ago said, Israel could have come into the promised land in a matter of weeks, but because they retained the mindset of slaves, they had to stay there for 40 years. Yeah, I, I've been told it's three days on a Land Rover. I, well, there you go. Yes. So, so you're working this out, and I have to say, just the, the tidbit that you've you've talked about with loving your enemies and what that requires is a it's totally contrary to the way loving your enemies is often portrayed. Because you know now it's portrayed, as I said, from a very culturally Marxist perspective. So, what are some other topics that this catechism yeah. is, is going to approach. And you don't have to give the no, no, explanation, um, but... I, I think what we're looking at is the... Um, we, we thought we'd reverse engineer the, the seven days of creation. And actually, as the early church fathers do, add a day zero, um, which is the resurrection. And I think St. John in his gospel is alluding to this kind of structure as well. And we'd sort of start with... So in Loving Our Enemies, we're starting with the whole idea of rest and Sabbath and reconciliation uh, and that we are made for this. You know, we are mm. made to be we are made for the Sabbath. Uh, and, um, you know, what would be the point, for instance, of um, doing hours of mindfulness and then going out and canceling people, you know, or deplatforming people? Right. That the, the true Christian mindfulness uh, is to come before the cross with empty pockets, prepared to love your enemy. So that, you know, from that, we think that the next, I mean, the most obvious pertinent issue at the moment, obviously, is of identity, you know, of marriage, gender, sexuality. Uh, and um, the, the all the questions are around that and um, presenting afresh, you know, in a way that is generous and pastoral, uh, these these issues are showing that the, that the the church's teaching is not cruel, um, right. but in its biblical foundations and in our two thousand years memory, it is is part and parcel of God's love affair with us. Mm. 
So, yeah, there, there's that one. We want to look at the whole idea of, again, picking up. I think Jordan Peterson's clearly picking up on this as well, that we've lost our sense of good hierarchy and order. Right. So so hierarchy is uh, part of this also. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that... Um, I see this in so many ways, and I think it, it seems to be particularly something that plagued the boomer generation, isn't it? That everything in the past had to be rewritten. Uh, and it's, it's the revolutionary thing, isn't it, of making your lifetime year zero. And everything right. in the past is simplistic, stupid, um, not worth investigating. I suppose having been grown up brought up by my grandparents um, who are war generation, I had a slightly different perspective. You know? Right, so yes. I, I kind of picked up on their conservatism and um, uh, and even now find, you know, I find myself probably overly overly deferential to the elderly. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that, that in a way that other, other cultures, you know, if you went to Africa or India, uh, the, the elderly are not... Uh, are rarely put in care homes. Right. You know, they, right. They, they are at the head of the table. Yes. Because irrespective of their um, cerebral function, their very presence has something to say. Yes. They are storehouses yeah. of wisdom. Whether or not that wisdom all can all come out in words, their, their wisdom comes out of their fingertips as well. And I, I, I say this as one who my grandmother and step granddad to a lesser degree had a strong impact on my view of the world. I mean, they were not people with a, you know, they were not active in politics, but they're, they lived out the apostle Paul's admonition to, to live a quiet and peaceable life, to, to, to live a sober life and to mind your own business. Both minding your own business, meaning not just that you do your work, but do not overly concern yourself with things that are not what, what you're, what, what's given to you to do, but do your job and do it well. And so, so that perspective is one that it has lost. So here, there, there's been a, and by here I mean in our church, and in some neighboring churches, uh, uh, the pursuit of, of emphasizing the extended household, mm-hmm. not just the nuclear family, but but the extended household and and, and the good of learning from those who are older, as well. No, uh, I, I think there's it's an issue running through so many churches, even traditional Anglican churches like mine, uh, where you know people want, in essence, because they they've been catechized as consumers. Uh, they, they want the the Church of Frank Sinatra. You know, I did it my way. Yes. And if I don't get what I want, if I don't get the hymns I like or if I don't get the pastoral ministry that I feel I deserve, um, uh, you know, I'm going to walk or I'm going to cause trouble uh, and um, I'm going to rattle my cage. And and I I think if we take Benedict seriously, for instance, you know, uh, there's clearly a completely different starting point. that, that uh, our um, subsisting in community has to has to mean, you know, humbly being part of the whole. Yes. And and um, that that's a really difficult thing. I mean, one of my writers was saying, you know, that one of the issues about creating Benedict option styled communities or underground churches, whatever you want to call them. Uh, or traditional new monastic communities, uh, whatever the label is, if this whole sense of hierarchy and order isn't dealt with in a mature way, 
um, were either going to become clubs or cults or just nebulous organizations that make that can make no demands right on, on anyone and i think it this is a real issue it's a real issue generational issue uh and i think many of us feel like we're we're having to catch up quite quickly on this yes. and what this means yes but because well, we are a voluntaristic people yeah you know it, it's not just so um, Americans think that everyone who is to our east uh, is, is some Americans still think that the British are all you know crown loving people who who adore hierarchy and the same way with continental Europe when you know the infection of egalitarianism is, is just it's rampant mm. everywhere so. Learning to submit, as the Apostle Paul says, and and, and, and the other apostles as well, uh, Jesus himself, we're called to submit. So learning submission wisely is tough. And now, go, springing from that, you have taken a clear perspective on... COVID measures, excessive COVID measures. So how do you, how do you, with your view that, that there is God-ordained hierarchy, how do, do you maintain that, but also wise yet firm stance against some of the draconian measures that have been in place hmm. from governments and from 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 in, in your case church headquarters church, church hierarchy how do you maintain that balance well i think i would say to those above me in the hierarchical food chain if if daniel french is rattling his cage then listen up because this is not your natural rebel right i think that's the first thing i'd say you know and uh Benedict's rule, if, if memory serves me right, says in several instances, in about the novice, the chapter must be informed by the novice and the younger members. That the whole community has a voice and that a, a community, an ecclesial community, it doesn't listen to the younger the younger members, the novices, right. um, who isn't taking their perspective, um, I think it's a doomed community. Right. So in, in that respect, I feel like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm serving the wider church, but I, I'm not a natural rebel against hierarchy in any way. Um, but um, you, you also have to act within your conscience. Right. And I think... By that, I mean, you know, not just what comes through your mind at the moment, but an informed conscience. Right. So I, I have felt with, uh, with anything significant in my life, I've tended to spend a lot of time thinking, researching, uh, praying about it, uh, particularly if I'm going to have something which is contrary to you know, or, or slightly, slightly rebellious, or uh, right. au contraire to the um, the given narrative. Uh, so that, that that's kind of my that's sort of my starting point. I, I think what's been interesting in like doing this, and a number of my spectator articles have been uh, resistant to um, a lot of COVID regulations. However, has been you know those who've been able to say, you know, thank you for writing this. You're speaking on, you're speaking in a way that many of us feel shy to do so. Mm. Uh, and I've had you know one or two bishops who said, you know, your writings are my secret pleasure. <laughs> well. I'm, you know, sure so, you would, I'm sure you would like to say, I wish that your writings could be my 
open pleasure. Pleasure. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, to me, it strikes that we're in a in a fear and anxiety do strange things to to human beings, and I've I've come to see that in the last eighteen months that um. Uh, fear can distort our vision. You know, like like a, I used to do a lot of amateur astronomy, um, but some of it was more on the Discovery Channel, I have to say, in terms of watching oh. the documentaries than going right. outside on cold Devon Hills with a telescope. But, you know, that a black hole distorts light around it mm-hmm. um, and creates this gravitational lens. So when you're looking at it, you're not actually seeing things as they are and i think that what we have at the moment is this kind of existential black hole that is sucking out our perspective and creating this massive distortion so that's a great analogy to to kind of speak into that uh i think i i feel kind of morally obliged to speak into that and say you know we need to be taking lots of second looks at the way we're heading and the way that we're behaving um, uh, in all sorts of manners, you know, uh, particularly as as churches, where we're called first, I think, to preach about um, God's aversion for us to have a second death. Right. Rather than to be overly concerned about our, you know, our, our own mortality, which Christ does say, doesn't he? Um, so I'm not very good at biblical references, but, you know, uh, I, I'm sure there are plenty of where Christ and the apostles tell us to put eternal life first. Right. Don't fear the one who can kill the body, but yeah. fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell. Yeah. And, and uh, just go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, that the problem is, is that, that COVID has created this, a psychological cloud base in right. which you know o- over the united kingdom at the moment is this uh, is is this sense in which people cannot see what life could be like beyond simply existing mm. so to 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 kind of take this in to cl- uh, for a close what you what you're projecting here about you know re- regarding fear what 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 you've said which is very true you you referred earlier to the concept of re-enchantment which i personally am i i absolutely love so how does that the, the idea of the you know re-enchantment of the world or you could say you know discovering the sacramentality of the world how does that combat ongoing fear because in my mind at least those two if if you have a view that this world is indeed charged with the grandeur of god to borrow hopkins mm-hmm. and that what we do not only matters temporally in the material but it has eternal ramifications mm-hmm. and it, and that we are now shifting you know a little bit to lewis if, if i can combine a whole bunch of mm-hmm. wonderful thinkers in one paragraph he, he talks about that what we what we have here is actually a we are living in the shadows mm-hmm. and the real is before us yeah. So, you know, so, so how, how does that view of the what is real and, and about the world being enchanted, how does that combat fear? And, and how can families take a perspective that will push against the fear and adopt a proper perspective on God's world? Do you know, I think this is such a crucial issue. And... I don't know if it's Dreher who said it or Ashenden. Someone said it recently that if we don't get this right as Christians, um, we are not going to enjoy the kind of bond and unity at the end of the 21st century that God probably wills us to have. But it is there for us to pick freely or not. 
Mm. If we remain in um, the theological battles of 500 years ago and our various divisions and do not address this issue, um, I think the generations to come who pastor our churches uh, are going to be much the poorer. And this is... This issue is moving, and I think it is beginning to move fast. I hope that it moves fast enough, and that people like Rod Dreher writing this this book, that this will get the traction that it needs. Um, and if I were to say from a more Catholic end of Christianity, uh, my, my appeal to, um, the, to Reformed Christians would be, this is this is a really important journey, you know, and um, uh, in in many ways, so much progress has been made in Christian unity. Uh, we're actually talking to each other, you know, we're praying with each right. other. Um, our liturgies have a similarity, you know. Um, for instance, you know, R- Roman Catholics um, academic scriptural work is is fantastic. Their, their rediscovery of the um, uh, of the vernacular is surely an ecumenical gift to the church. Mm. Uh, and there is a sense in which the the reformed end of Christianity now needs to respond uh, and to embrace a a sacramental heart for the world because yeah. to put it bluntly in cinematographic ways you know it's it's either narnia or the matrix you decide well that puts it very plainly and i, I know uh, which one i would prefer yeah because if you look at the moment a large percentage of people are migrating to cyberspace in their lives from the yes. hours they spend online, on phones, the way they are digitalizing their life, the way they are digitalizing their relationships. Um, uh, they are seeing everything in terms of binaries and cogs and mechanisms. Uh, mm. we, are, we are not only creating AI Frankenstein, but we are happily allowing ourselves to be morphed into that in, a, in our even... I don't mean just mean about augmented Robocop technology, but just our vision of the world. And uh, I think this needs to be, I think the church needs to be the analog revolution, really, that, 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 that actually completely goes for the jugular on this. Uh, and to save, to save humanity, to actually be part of the saving world, I think, uh, I think that the whole fall story in Genesis um, is is now. You know, it is every day. You know, I mean, to, to, I, I've said this to folks. You know, if you look, you know, I, look at the, the symbol on the back of your phone. Right. This is celebrating, supposedly celebrating a kind of, Promethean vision of humanity, which says right. we took the forbidden fruit because the apple, because we deserved it, and and it yes. was ours to take. Mm. Uh, I've and never thought I, about that. I think, well, you know, if you, Jonathan Pajot you know, on YouTube some masses on, on this. I think I highly recommend anyone to go and have a look on this. You know. Uh, it is as if we haven't learned the whole scriptural lesson. Um, right. Choose Narnia, not the Matrix. And I think uh, you know, that that's gonna. There's a lot of there's a lot of work to be done in in getting that right in the churches and uh, and in many ways. But however, I think if you if we begin globally on that level, then. Maybe some of that stuff about what happens at the Eucharist, you know, is it the real Jesus body and blood or is it not? And all those stuff that we get very hang up, we have hang ups about. 
about what is happening, you know, is there any ontological change? And, you know, I'm not going to walk on the same side of the street because you have a different view of the Eucharist. Well, if we can get a same view of the world, I think a lot of those other discussions will fall into place. Right. Um, and, and we will at least have a world in which to discuss those things. Yeah, as, exactly. And that's the it, danger. We don't get this. I mean, I, I think it's as critical as this. If we don't get this right as churches, there might not be a human race at the end of the 21st century. There might be the Sims, which aliens come and visit and wonder why are there all these simulations going around of completely mm. unconscious beings? Because wow. we were quite happy to let that happen. We're, you know, we augmented ourselves. I mean, Dawkins has said this. Dawkins has said this. That he thinks will will, you know, biological creatures will be out evolved by AI and, and that you know, um, and and I think it all links into links into the idea of we want a safe digital world. We want a world that's a bit like um, a video game where we can there are it's fun, but there are no. Um, there were no real risks, right? And, well, and at the end of the day, you can you can switch the PlayStation off and do something else, you know. Right. And 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 the problem is we we've, we've saturated ourselves with this safe world that uh, that we want. When COVID comes along, we have no cosmology to deal with the great existential questions. We we are terrorized under the cloud base because we can't see the light through it. Well, Daniel, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. And, and, and I hope to check in again and Please. You know, when, 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 when you're closer on, on this, this catechism, this book, because this, is, this will be really good, I believe. So thank you for taking time to, to meet with us today. I appreciate it. And, uh, and Lord bless you. Thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you.